And welcome everyone. I'm Melody Paris. I'm your host this evening. Welcome to a joint show of December 2020 for Second Opinion Radio and In Tune to Nature on Radio Free Georgia. Please remember as you listen to the show this evening that the views and opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, it's board staff or volunteers. So happy to be here with you this evening. Uh, we have a great show and tonight our topic is the book, The Human Animal Earthling Identity, Shared Values Unifying Human Rights, Animal Rights and Environmental Movements. Our uh, author and also um, the guest this evening who happens to also be a co-host uh, for um, uh, in Tune to Nature and for Second Opinion Radio is Dr. Carrie Freeman. Um, and a little bit about Carrie before we get started. She is an Associate Professor of Communication at Georgia State University in Atlanta. She's a critical cultural studies media researcher who has published articles in more than 20 scholarly books and journals on strategic communication for activists, media ethics, environmental communication and critical animal studies. And in addition to writing the Human Animal Earthling Identity book, she is author of a 2014 vegan advocacy book, Framing Farming, Communication Strategies for Animal Rights. She also co-edited the anthology, Critical Animal and Media Studies, Communication for Non-Human Animal Advocacy with Dr. Deborah Merskin. She also co-authors Media Style Guidelines for Respectful Coverage of Animals at animalsandmedia.org. And Dr. Freeman has been active in the animal rights and vegan movement since the mid-1990s. She's served as a volunteer director for local grassroots groups in Florida, Georgia, and Oregon. Um, and she's the faculty advisor right now for the GSU Student Animal Rights Group, the Peace Club. For the last decade, uh, Carrie has been co-hosting a bi-weekly uh, show right here on WRFG, the In Tune to Nature show, which is also a podcast. And she's also a co-host on Second Opinion Radio, um, which is on Atlanta's indie station, Radio Free Georgia, 89.3 FM. Um, and so glad you're listening to us here as we talk about it. Um, Dr. Freeman earned her PhD in communications and society from the University of Oregon, her master's in mass media studies from the University of Georgia, and her bachelor's uh, from the University of Florida. She's actually a native Floridian uh, who now lives here in Georgia uh, with Elliot, um, very close to our radio station here. So uh, right. Terry, thank you so much for uh, all that you do because that's a very long bio and I know there's even more, um, but you have been- well, so that, That's all the good stuff. That, that's the bio <laughs> that makes me look impressive. And you're my friend, so you could like say a few more things, but let's not. Uh, <laughs> That'll be a different show, maybe. That's a different right. show. Um, right. But I'm so excited to talk about your, your book because uh, we've been mentioning it as you were working on it for a while. And so it's finally here. Yes. Again, the name is The Human Animal Earthling Identity, Shared Values Unifying Human Rights, Animal Rights, and Environmental Movements. Um, so let's talk about it. What is the, the title uh, human animal earthling identity mean and who is a who is an 
human animal earthling? Well, you are, and I am, and really everyone is. So like, so in a way the title is, is so broad that on one, uh, one level you could say it's kind of meaningless because it's just like saying we're human. Um, but to identify as a human animal earthling means that you're identifying with all those components. So you've got the human part, which means that I'm not just identifying with my nationality or my race or something like that. I'm identifying with the human race, homo sapiens. And then also I'm part of the animal kingdom. I feel a kinship with um, other animal species, other sentient beings. And then I acknowledge that I'm also an earthling. Like there's a certain humility there in the sense that I am just another um, species member living, being on this planet, right? Um, and so, uh, and so if you're going to identify as a human animal earthling, which like, I'd say you identify Melody as a human animal earthling. Cause like you, for example, just yesterday and today were rescuing an injured owl. So, I mean, clearly, you know, not only do you care about humanity and identify, you know, as a human yourself, but you feel, um, sympathy uh, and take action towards uh, wildlife. Um, and so that's like a, a display of how you expand your moral sphere of concern. So that's what the idea is with the human animal earthling identity uh, would be that we recognize all these elements of ourselves. Cause I think so often we've been raised to just, I mean, yeah, we know we're on planet earth and like biologically, technically we might be an animal, uh, but we mostly just identify as human. So, but there's a need to expand that out um, so that we are willing to take care of more living beings than, than just, you know, ourselves. And, and the motto that came from the book about the human animal earthling identity, like if it was a bumper sticker or something, it would say, share our home planet, support life, take care and play fair. And that's those. That's what a human animal earthling would do. Yeah, Carrie, you started your book out with, um, and I'm quoting, uh, a line that says, "This is no ordinary time." Um, yeah. And I thought that was such a, a profound thing to say. You know, what was your goal when you're writing this book, and and how does that tie in? Yeah. Well, just there's the feeling and, and you can sympathize with this melody and some of our listeners that like when you're working on so many justice issues all the time, you see that they're connected to one another and you get very overwhelmed, right? With all the different problems in the world. And there's a sense, you know, that each group or nonprofit group needs more help or that sometimes we feel like we're up against either these giant forces in, in the world um, that might be, let's say, economic forces or discriminatory forces, um, or just transnational corporations or governments who are uncooperative or something like. So there's a sense that social movements need to band together because of major issues that are also interconnected, um, like mass exploitation by corporations. Um, discrimination on so many levels based on species and gender and sexual orientation and race and religion, ability. Um, and then we are in a globalized society. So things that we do in one part of the world influence other people. And that's like another reason why we all kind of need to work together. 
especially since, you know, we're nonprofits often going up against um, heavily, <laughs> um, very wealthy, uh, financially wealthy institutions and industries. So there, there's a sense that alliances are needed and that they also just make sense too, that it makes sense that we should all work together and not just kind of be siloed working, you know, independently. Um, so that that's one of the, the aspects that made me want to write the book. And so I was deciding to look at human rights groups and animal protection groups and wildlife and environmental groups and see what kinds of things they are valuing and what values they tend to promote and then see where they overlap. Because my feeling was if we can find where the values overlap between the different movements, we could emphasize those as a, a show of unity or that's like a place where we can more easily come together. Mm -hmm. How, I mean, you've been on the front line, of course, when I read your bio, our listeners heard, you know, all the different ways you've been involved in, in animal rights and environmental rights, and you're a big, you're a big proponent of uh, social justice. How has that history influenced this project? Because you're not just an observer, you're active. Right. And, and, and right. And there's all different kinds of ways to be active too. Like I consider our radio show, you know, like a form of activism and writing as well as like, a, Melody, you do a lot of demonstrations and, and so there, and then, you know, there's leafleting and tabling. Okay. All those kinds of things. I, I think in some ways, what was important to me and what I think is unique about this book is my position also as an animal, as someone who really privileges animal rights and is very concerned about that and who is vegan because I think oftentimes when we talk about joining forces or being allies with social groups, what would normally get left out are the animals, right? Like, I mean, human groups can understand why you would care about the environment because our environment affects us as humans, right? We, could, we don't wanna be polluted um, and sickened. Um, and then, you know, in the environmental movement, I think they care about humans because they're run by humans. And so even if they're mad at the things that humans do, there's a sense that they need to respect human rights. And the environmental movement also um, values endangered species. So if they, they like animals and really work to protect them, especially if they're endangered. Um, but the animal rights movement to me is kind of a bridge between human rights and environmental concerns around, because what we value with human rights is usually the sentient part of us. It's, it is our animality as humans um, that is what gives us or imbues us with what we feel like are a sense of rights to be treated with respect as individuals. And so the animal rights movement asks us to expand some of those concerns out and it might look different you know, in the way that you would treat um, wild animals or domesticated non-human animals, but the sense that they also deserve to be respected. Because if you look at things from an environmental rights point of view, environmentalism might say, look, if things get really rough, we're going to have to crack down on anybody, any species who's causing the problem, you know, that's impacting the greater good, right? And mm -hmm. so, but then you're going to turn around and go, oh, who's impacting the greater good? Oops, <laughs> it's us, you know, uh, and again, not all human cultures are, are guilty to the same extent. Um, but we are part of a human culture that highly industrialized um, and, you know, is a big part of 
the, the problem. So if we want, it only makes sense to continue to respect our human rights as we solve these environmental problems that we're creating by, and if we're doing that at, by respecting the fact that we're sentient and we want to avoid suffering and our lives matter, then we need to extend that same courtesy to the other sentient beings, namely animals that we share the world with. So in a way, I feel like animal rights is a path to protect human rights, but it's also important in its own sense. So I guess I think that my stance as an animal rights activist is important in writing this book so that animal rights didn't get shoved to the back burner, you know, like it normally would, um, that I try to respect um, fellow animals in the same way I would respect humans and then respect um, ecosystems a little bit more holistically as um, a, a the places that nurture us and the systems that nurture us sentient beings. So that's a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> well, I really like that you brought up um, the thought or the idea around how uh, with the environmental movement, because I hadn't thought of that before, but it is true when there's a problem, there is that kind of leaning toward, well, we just have to, whomever has been deemed the problem you know, gets basically eliminated. And, you know, we see that very often with um, so-called invasive species right. that if you track it back, it was the human animal that brought them to the new place or the, you know, the hunters who brought in the Canada geese, you know, in the seventies and now uh, golf courses think they're a problem or apartment right. complexes think they're a problem. Well, the human animal brought them out of their environment and brought yes. them here. So, yeah, it, it, that is that that is tricky, and it, it is a dangerous loop. I think that the environmental organizations uh, end up in. So something definitely to think think about. Why did you focus on identity and values instead of some other routes to social change when you were putting the book together? Yeah, I mean. A lot of them kind of overlap, but I mean, some people might say, well, let's focus more on changing people's behaviors, a behavioral route, or let's focus on the politics of the situation and policy chains, or let's really focus on market-based consumer changes or just a change in education. And all of these things are important, um, but I'm in influenced, I think, at a much more foundational level in the sense that we need to expand our sense of self in order to save the world in which we live. And that's also like a tagline for the book, expanding our sense of self to save the world in which we live. Like at a core level, we're not gonna save the planet unless as individuals, we identify more deeply with other species and other beings as part of our in-group. And so uh, some work of psychologists, um, like Crompton and Kasser had been working for the World Wildlife Fund on a lot of social change um, uh, studies. And they had said that, you know, cultivating an environmental identity is very important. Susan Clayton also has written about environmental identity that the people who identify more uh, based on the interdependence that we have with other species, they tend to care more about animal protection and environmental protection. Um, and even there's some studies that show that people who don't believe as much in the human animal binary tend to be less racist or racially prejudiced too. Um, so th there's the sense that these separations that we have over like the environment and humans or my group or animals as being different 
um, if, if they make you feel that other, other entities are not part of your group, then there's a sense you could maybe demonize them or not care about them as much. So on a fundamental level, I feel like a sense of altruism is, is needed. And that comes from um, caring more deeply about others by seeing ourselves as kind of part of them. So, and I'm also influenced on uh, just a communications level too by George Lakoff, um, who is a linguist who also does political strategy, but, and he's saying what you do see a lot in politics, which is a focus on values. Like you don't, you don't make change in people just by talking about statistics, right? Mm -hmm. It's more about you get people on an emotional level. And I don't want to separate emotions and rationality completely um, that um, we do things because we care about them. <laughs> like, so you're motivated based on your identity and your values. So let's see what kind of identity and values would be most motivating for you to get involved in progressive social change. And so that's, um, that's what I've been concerned with. And then I put that in a communications context in terms of, okay, so then how could social movements in our activism build campaigns that um, foreground or foster or cultivate um, values such as life and responsibility and compassion and justice and equality um, and unity, responsibility, fairness, things like that. When you were uh, writing your book, I know you studied uh, 16 international social movement organizations and you spoke with some of their leaders. Um, um, and some of, of certainly the names people will recognize. I know you spoke with a couple of my favorite uh, leaders as well. Um, but what did you find? Yeah, so as a basic, like, I mean, I could have written this book and just said, okay, based on my own beliefs, I'll, I'll look at some of the literature and then I'll tell you what I think the value should be or pull them from some of the studies in the literature. And I did that to some degree, but I thought it would be enhanced if I did an, an empirical study where I'm actually looking at what um, the social movements are talking about in their campaign. So I, I looked at their websites and then I was trying to see, okay, who do they value? Who's valuable? Who do we care about? What things are good? What things are bad? And then I was trying to find, you know, um, places where all of that overlapped and we, we had some shared values. And so in picking out and, and it's a qualitative study, so I couldn't look at hundreds and hundreds of different um, nonprofits. So what I did was I picked larger ones that fell within a human rights realm, some that fell in animal protection realm, and some in the environmental realm, although they do overlap to, to some extent, obviously. And so for human rights, I picked, I also wanted them to be global. I'm going to mention that as well. Um, so, because again, because I'm trying to address things at a larger level and not just within the United States, um, I was trying to pick groups that worked internationally. So for the human rights groups, I studied Amnesty International, CARE, which is actually based here in Atlanta, anti-poverty group, Human Rights Watch, Minority Rights Group International, and Anti-Slavery International. And you'll also perhaps be able to tell that I'm trying to build in a sense of diversity of the types of um, causes that the groups are looking at so that you've got anti-poverty, you've got LGBTQ issues, you've got political uh, prisoner uh, issues and freedom issues, and then anti-slavery issues and things like that. 
For animal protection, I have kind of a blend of animal rights and animal welfare groups, and some of them are more about domesticated, some of them are more about wildlife. So we have People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, PETA, the World Wildlife Fund, Animal Equality International, which is another animal rights group, International Fund for Animal Welfare, IFA, and then the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. Um, and that group, um, people may know if they watch the, that Whale Wars show that used to be on Animal Planet, um, mm -hmm. that's the Sea Shepherd Society. And then there's environmental groups, uh, Greenpeace, the Nature Conservancy, Friends of the Earth International, Rainforest Action Network, Oceana, and 350.org. 350.org is Bill McKibben's um, coalition to fight uh, the climate crisis. So with um, that's what, again, you see, I'm trying to have like, okay, climate issues, ocean issues, rainforest issues, um, you know, land rights issues, environmental justice, all of that kind of built in. And then I interviewed, I tried to get, in addition to looking at what they have on their websites, I also wanted to ask, um, ask, I wanted to talk to somebody at each of these groups. Now, um, I was able to talk to, I think maybe like 13 of them. I was able to talk to either their president or somebody in communications to, to tell me more about their values and their communication strategy. But then um, I also added in some other activists as well. But um, so some people might recognize some names like Ingrid Newkirk, who's the president of PETA. Um, and then the president of Animal Equality International, Sharon Nunez, talked to me, president of Friends of the Earth USA, Eric Pica. Um, at the time, the, the CEO of the Nature Conservancy, which is a huge organization, Mark Tar Tersek, um, he, I interviewed him. And then I think who you were alluding to, Melody, earlier, besides Ingrid Newkirk, another favorite person of yours is Captain Paul Watson mm -hmm. of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. Um, and then also Lori Marino, she's often on the Second Opinion radio show, the neuroscientist um, and founder of the Whale Sanctuary Project. Mm -hmm. um, and then like Frances Moore LePay, I've had her on my show too, um, the very uh, prominent activist diet for uh, a small planet and a small planet institute. Um, Will Travers, who runs Born Free Foundation, it was his parents that did the Born Free movie um, mm -hmm. with Elsa the lion, some people might remember that. Um, and then Mustafa Ali, I just saw him on Democracy Now. He is a prominent um, United States environmental justice advocate um, who used to work with the Hip Hop Caucus, but now I think he works with the National Wildlife Federation. But anyway, so those are just some of um, the people that I interviewed. And um, in terms, and, and, the, and who I was, was looking at, um, let me share some of the um, common opponents that they mentioned, or like, um, or let's, so, so come, some of the common opponents, because again, it's like, okay, why should we work together? Do we have common opponents? Mm -hmm. um, and in some cases, we're saying like, okay, yes, corporations, no big surprise, <laughs> come up <laughs> pretty often, but again, mm -hmm. not all corporations, but some corporations and their industries are a common problem for all these movements, all these causes. The economic system came up a lot too. And so sometimes that might be like the World Bank or the banking system, but sometimes it's just the way that even corporations or um, governments um, calculate 
problems so that they exclude, they're not, they're only looking at profits in a limited myopic sense. And they're not actually taking into account the investment we make when we save a rainforest versus, you know, the money that you get when you cut down a rainforest, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the fact that economic systems are not really built up, built and designed globally to be um, environmentally sustainable and or to even to count a lot of free, you could say women's work, free labor that's done in the private sphere. So many problems there. And then governments can be a problem too. I mean, we want good governance, but sometimes governments are either too autocratic and strong or they are too weak and they become more manipulated by um, corporate interests. And then also just, just discriminatory attitudes um, become a problem that all of, all of them noted, um, whether it's patriarchy or white supremacy uh, or speciesism, they, they, they can all be problematic. And then I also asked people like, okay, what uh, of the activists I talked to, what are some of the root causes of, this, of the problematic you know, behaviors and attitudes that people have? And so the most popular answer is, um, the root cause of our problems is discrimination and unjust use of power over quote unquote others. So just the fact that so many of us see, look at everybody in terms of us and them is a problem, and especially a sense of like human entitlement or privilege, maybe based on your race, um, that that's a huge problem. And then also another thing that came up was decisions based on fear or inertia that hold back progressive change. And so we do see a lot of that fear mongering in political um, campaigns lately and from Trump in particular. Um, and so and that kind of fear uh, and defensiveness that people have can keep us from coming together. Mm -hmm. um, another big problem is just selfishness and greed, and that can be on a personal level, or it can be, you know, that corporations may be just acting more selfishly. Another problem they identified is misunderstandings that divide us, um, that we're ignorant about ecology, or we have false narratives about um, the poor, and we're just being more divisive than we need to. And then just a few people mentioned um, some, so it was less popular, some of these answers, but passing the buck, failure to take responsibility is a problem. Systematically being violent and ecologically irresponsible in our treatment of animal life on this planet. And then lack of democracy or public engagement. So those were, that's just kind of a list of some of the root causes that were identified by all of these groups, things we all need to tackle. And um, of all those things, which one did you, after your research, find, um, or maybe there isn't one, maybe they're all equal, but which one do you think is, is the biggest mm. issue, if you had to pick one? Yeah, I mean, the, certainly selfishness and greed jumps out at me just because the, at the basis of the book is this idea that we need to be more altruistic and like more concerned about how we, the things we do influence others or how we can take care of others. And so, but at the basis of that, um, there would be a sense that you need to care about others and not think you're more important. So I do think that top one they mentioned is discrimination and unjust use of power over others is the, is really the ultimate problem. Yeah, it seems to connect. It's a ribbon that, that weaves through everything, really just, you know, looking at your book, it always seems to come down to others, even when we think about or in my opinion, when we even when we think about people being greedy, well, it's because 
you know, they're cutting out others and focusing on themselves or fear mongering. I thought that was an interesting yeah. one. But again, it, it comes back to that. The fear is taking care of myself and, right. you know, pulling in, as they used to say, circling the wagons. And mm. when you do that, there's people or animals or environment oh. outside of that circle. Once right. again, that's a good know. analogy. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's so fascinating. And, and certainly um, what what did you find anything that surprised you when you were talking to these these people? Well, I think, I mean, I really identified with so much of what they're saying. So it, it wasn't really so much a sense of surprise. I mean, I, um, but they like also a lot of the, these people might have more, what, what I liked, I guess, was even if they were working for a human rights organization, they tended to understand like the point of my book or that, that, um, that we're all in this together. So when I asked them for reasons why we should work together, they, they, you know, they come up with all these reasons why everything's interconnected, which is, which is great to hear. Um, and like also thinking, I want to mention that um, when I was looking at the way they put together values, like if I was going to summarize some of the things that they said, it would be empathize, respect, and coexist. Meaning like if we empathize and show compassion for other living beings, that empathy would probably lead to a sense of respect, whether it's for you know human dignity or the sentience of fellow animals or the inherent value of nature, respect. And then if you respect others, that's gonna enable a sense of community, that empathy and respect. And then if you have community, that means you have to coexist. So you have to share, you have to have a sense of fairness and equitable treatment and harmonious coexistence. So those are, that's kind of how I think some of those values of empathy, respect and respect lead to coexistence and community. You're listening to Radio Free Georgia and a special combined show for Second Opinion Radio and In Tune to Nature. I'm Melody Paris and I've been interviewing my friend uh, Carrie. Uh, she's also a co-host. Uh, Dr. Freeman uh, is talking about her new book, The Human-Animal-Earthling Identity, Shared Values, Unifying Human Rights, Animal Rights, and Environmental Movements. Uh, published by the UGA Press. Um, so Carrie, based on uh, all of your investigation and studying uh, the international social movements and activists, what have you determined are the values of a human animal earthling? Right, so I came up with this very long list, actually. So uh, the, the book is filled with tables and charts in there because I'm constantly um, categorizing all these values. And throughout the book, um, based on a pilot study, I determined that some basic categories, like if you just wanted to remember four, some basic four categories are values that support life, um, values that are supporting fairness and justice, values of being responsible, and values of unification or, or unifying with, with other species. And so like in the life supporting value area, some things that we, that sometimes these are values like virtues we would have. And then other times they're things or concepts that we could value. So to support life, we need to value agroecology, biological diversity, caretaking, especially of those who are dependent on us, which is what you did, Melody, when you were rescuing that owl yesterday, caretaking, mm -hmm. health and well-being, um, 
worrying about people's livelihoods and then, uh, you know, livelihoods, what wilderness or wildlife have a, a sense of needing to have resources for a livelihood too. Naturalness, sanctuaries and reserves, peacefulness, nonviolence, protecting others, restoring and healing, um, safe, secure, and clean habitats, clean living spaces, stable climate. All of these things came up as values the human animal earthling would have related to life. Some of the values that we would have about relating to fairness would be coexisting, cultural diversity and inclusion, democratic decision-making, people power, equality, freedom, freedom over a sentient being's own body, speech, mobility, labor, life choices, legal protection and enforcement of those laws by government, reparation for harms, respect for humans, other animals and nature, rights for sentient individuals and ecosystems, sharing, a sense of sharing with fellow beings, territory and land rights, um, you know, not doing the land grabbing of, of land that belongs to indigenous groups and recognizing um, the, the rights of also wildlife. And then values related to responsibility can include accountability, like for the harms that we cause, um, being careful and wise and prudent, not to, which is what the climate action, <laughs> climate action is asking of us to start being careful. Collective action for problem solving, conscientious consumption, which could be buying vegan and cruelty-free, fair trade, living wage, biodegradable, organic. Um, educating others is part of being responsible, empowering others and providing agency, engaging in political citizenship, commitment to causes, a sense of moral integrity, investment in a sustainable future is showing responsibility, um, speaking out and challenging abuses of power, sustainable use of resources, and truth-telling are examples of responsibility. And then the last category is unification values. And these are things like community, compassion and empathy for sentient beings, um, dignity uh, for sentient beings, a sense of self-respect that we can all identify with. Um, family is important to all social animals. Harmony, cooperation, humility, love and friendship, the, the social bonds we have, inclusivity and openness, interdependence, uh, solidarity and a sense of understanding. So this is a really long list and I, um, so there's a lot there uh, to work with, um, but there's a sense that you would just draw from this list where it's uh, kind of most applicable to whatever you're working on. Mm -hmm. What are, what are some of the, I mean, thing and they're like, that is a long list. Well, how can I put some of those values into action? Yeah. I mean, what would you suggest? Well, where do, the, okay. where do you start? There, there's kind of on two levels because on a personal level, I, I created a list of 20 virtues. So like if you're, if you consider, okay, I identify as a human animal earthling, here are the virtues that I am going to embody. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be accountable, caring, compassionate, committed, cooperative, courageous, fair, giving, honest, humble, humorous, I, I added that one in there, <laughs> a person of integrity, open-minded, peaceful, prudent, careful, respectful, responsible, trustworthy, understanding, and wise. Um, and then, and I'm going to do that towards a variety of beings and not just people who look like me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then if I am running a organization and I'm putting together a campaign, then I am going to look 
at the messages that I'm that I'm creating and just kind of make sure that I'm drawing upon these values. And sometimes with these campaigns, it doesn't mean that you're using the the word responsible because I know mm-hmm. that's kind of boring word, but um, but the idea would be that you're you're demonstrating a sense of responsibility. Like when we tell everybody, for example, that they need to vote, there is imbued in that is the sense of civic responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. Or when you recycle, like that that's what ultimately we're asking that you have to take responsibility for the things you're doing and how they affect others. Um, so, um, and again, you can show compassion without even using that word. And I feel like at any time we show somebody needing care or somebody suffering and knowing that we can help, there's a sense that we're saying, Hey, we think you empathize. We think you care about this individual who needs our help. And, you know, we want you to get involved because you're a caring person. So, um, one of the things I think is important is I, I know a lot of us can be cynical and we think, oh, well, the only way I can get people, let's say, to, to go vegan, uh, let's I'm going to tell tell them about how it's going to reduce um, their weight. You know, they can lose weight or it'll help their cholesterol. And that may be true, but I, I don't think that's the best way for us to go about promoting veganism because you've kind of depoliticized it and you've made it just like a personal lifestyle choice instead of something that we need to shift towards plant-based diets because it helps save the lives of domesticated and wild animals and um, stop pollution and deforestation and extinction um, and abuse of uh, also employees in that industry. And, and so, um, and greenhouse gas emissions, all these different things. So there's a sense that um, we wanna um, expand the notion um, of these of these terms and draw upon people's um, deeper core values, intrinsic values, and not just external values. Not to try to get somebody to do the right thing just to save money or just to look good or something, but mm-hmm. because it's the right thing to do. So there is a sense of idealism definitely built into this book, but it is backed up by a lot of social psychological. Um, studies and research about cross-cultural universal values and how motivating they could be. What would, uh, what would it look like for the different social causes to be allies with one another um, in promoting, you know, a human animal earthling identity? And in, in your opinion, what would need to change? Yeah. Um, uh, there's parts of the book where like when I go through and I talk about, okay, here's what the human rights groups are doing and the values and the campaigns and the animal protection groups and the environmental groups. But then I also um, spend some time at the end of the book saying, okay, how can they make accommodations for each other? And I ask the, there's parts where I ask the activists for that too. And I um, try to share some examples of where they are being inclusive. So let me maybe just start with that, like times when I found that the human rights groups were also embracing animal protection and environmental. Um, Although I will say with the human rights groups, I didn't see that much um, overlap with concern for non-human animals, but I will say human rights groups are good at showing concern for the environment in certain circumstances, especially for environmental justice causes, which is where we're looking at um, the disproportionate harm um, by toxins um, and climate, the climate crisis um, for um, people often who are poor. Uh, with the animal protection movement, 
there's times when um, they're talking about, like, especially in the animal rights movement, they'll talk about how um, animal agribusiness is bad for the environment. So there's a sense that they're concerned about that. And then PETA also extend, has extended that out and talks about how we could relieve human hunger if we were eating a plant-based diet, we could improve human health. Um, the, the workers, there's a lot of labor issues. So showing those kinds of concerns in vegan campaigns is part of being an ally. Mm -hmm. Um, and then like the wildlife groups, like, um, IFA and World Wildlife Federation, I liked that they would, um, use, they would mention a lot of beings. Like they would say people and wildlife, or we need to do things for life on our planet, including our own or for every living thing, including ourselves. So I liked that kind of inclusive language. Mm -hmm. um, and for environmental movements, they often use that inclusive language, like all of us or everyone or animals, plants and people or people in nature, people in wildlife. Um, so there's a sense that we're, we're all in this together. Um, and they, of course, show concern for environmental justice issues affecting um, human groups, especially poor and indigenous groups. Um, and then they often portray the more than human world as inherently valuable, regardless of its utility to humanity, which I think is also important, important thing when environmental groups do that. And they don't just say that, you know, this would be better for us. And like, this will be better for your water will be clean if we do this, but the waters need to be clean for the environment and for the fish and the, the amphibians who live there. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's sometimes also where like groups like Rainforest Action Network, Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace are suggesting that people eat less meat. And so they're acknowledging that, you know, we need to move to a plant-based diet. So I, I do outline in the book ways that each of these movements can show, um, can, can widen their sphere of concern. So they're also, when they're talking about their own issues, they sh they're showing that you know, if we're talking about um, the palm oil industry and all the problems it causes, and there are a lot of labor violations, uh, especially for people in Indonesia with the palm oil industry, but also they're cutting down rainforests and those rainforests are home to so many species, including orangutans, right? So you can bring in all of those issues so that you're making sure in your campaign that you're showing multi, you have like a multi-dimensional approach to why this is a problem and how it needs to be solved and who we have to think about. So I, I use the word who a lot in this book to say like, who, who matters in this case? We don't want to just limit it to one particular group. Right. You know, and, and maybe people, um, I guess if people have seen the movie Cowspiracy, they may be aware that there's there's been some tensions, um, you know, between the organizations. What are some of the ways to overcome those tensions and, and the philosophical differences when you're talking about human and non-human causes? Right. I do try to address this in the book because um, I don't want to be too Pollyanna about the fact that I know in like the, the notion of non-native species, which they might call in invasive species, which, but I think introduced species is a better <laughs> way to phrase it, um, causes a problem um, for like wildlife groups and environmental groups and animal protection groups. Um, but if we take an approach that is more uh, about compassionate conservation, 
we could say like, okay, well, let's respect the lives of any sentient individuals, even if we determine that, yes, it, they are not, they are a problem in this particular ecosystem because they're introduced here. But I also think it's important for us to really determine the extent to which they're a problem and not just say, oh, you didn't used to be here, now you are. We want it to look like some kind of pre-colonial ecosystem or something, and so therefore everybody else must go. So there's a sense that, which something similar that you said at the top of the hour, Melody, was that we need to recognize, and Lori Marino said this too in the book, um, that humans need to take responsibility for the role that we have caused in the non-native species or introduced species. And what are some of the other things that we're doing that are also endangering like some members of the community and not just place it all on like, oh, it's this possum or it's this rat or, um, you know, it's this, this feral pig that's the problem. So, and then, but if we do need to relocate animals, that could be a last resort, or maybe there could be birth control used instead of lethal methods. So that is just one example. Um, and that kind of gets into, I also address wildlife management in general um, with the sense that we need to look at other animals as members of the community. And um, <laughs> that's Elliot and he agrees. Um, and just make sure that we're considering the interests that they have at stake in, in anything. And it doesn't matter just if they're in danger or not. So, yeah, because quite often, a lot of times they aren't. Um, right. And so, yeah. And, and, and that's one of the problems is that environmental groups tend to protect endangered species but they but if you're not endangered and especially if they think you're overpopulated then they're going to eradicate you so it's like that kind of lethal responses to problems is doesn't fit within compassionate conservation um, i also talk a lot about the animal about eat, eating animals too right um, because that's really like this um the the elephant in the room in the sense that um it's a big issue Hey, Elliot, come here for a second, bunny. He's protecting me from a delivery person <laughs> or somebody, <laughs> as usual. I'm congratulating him now on his bravery um, of barking at the door. But um, I, I want to say that, um, again, most of the time when it comes to the, the animal, uh, the issue of eating animals, there's a sense like, oh, well, the animal rights groups just need to cave and we, you know, we can't, we can't just be telling people how to eat and all that kind of stuff. And I do think, so I'm trying to hold fast to the idea that we really shouldn't be farming animals and killing them for food when we don't have to. But I, there's also a sense that to work together, um, the animal protection movement or, does need to understand that sometimes some human communities aren't going to have all the same um, nutritional choices. And so um, it's, it makes more sense sometimes to focus on larger industrial farming and not salt, like smaller, you know, farming that someone's doing or smaller fishing in Maine or something like that. Um, and then to, so that we can kind of come together against, you know, confined animal feeding operations and big commercial fisheries 
and things like that. While we're also working together to try to get um, governments to subsidize and promote plant-based eating, right? So um, like Don Moncrief, who is with the hunger relief, um, the vegan hunger relief organization, a well-fed world, says she usually uses the term eliminate when you're talking about individuals, like you wanna to work towards eliminating animal products in your diet, if you can. But then at the global level, you might use the word reduce because eliminate might just be too stringent of a, you know, of a standard, right? So mm -hmm. like there's some flexibility in our language without abandoning the idea that, that ultimately it would be great if we weren't using animals for food, but there are some human communities that might still need to, but it would be better if it was only done in a subsistence manner and not for accumulating animal bodies and putting them into the global marketplace, because that is, is horrifying. So again, I try to talk about um, these different, these different um, tensions so that we can realistically address them and get past them. And I know we're coming up um, on the end of our time, but I wanted to just mention if I could just some projects that I thought, um, I'll mention thir 13 projects that the organizations, if the, the causes for human rights, animal protection, and environmentalism could work on together. Um, they are uh, democratic reforms, protecting democracy, economic systemic reforms, biocultural diversity protection, climate justice, and that's because um, wildlife is climate refugees too. Mm -hmm. uh, shift to sustainable and fair food systems. And so that agroecology needs to include primarily, um, you know, organic plant-based. Restoration of clean, healthy habitats within a justice context. Economic justice and elimination of poverty. Sustainable, equitable, equitable and animal inclusive urban design. That means I can bring Elliot with me on mm -hmm. public transit. Um, empowerment for women and minority groups to combat discrimination, transformation of masculinity, notions of masculinity away from violence, green post-colonialism and post-humanist approaches to indigenous land rights, abolition of enslavement of sentient beings, and freedom from unfair imprisonment for sentient beings. Like, criminal justice reform. So again, those are 13 different areas around which uh, of issues that need changing and that I think there's areas, there's ways that um, human causes and animal protection causes, and environmental causes could work together on those projects. Great, um, such a fascinating uh, book and uh, so pleased that we were able to talk about it this evening. Yeah. Um, if people want to get a copy of the Human Animal Earthling Identity book, uh, or even just find out more about it, how do they do that? Well, I started a website, humananimalearthlings.com. And so it explains the book and I try to put some of the findings there and it tells you, you know, where they can um, find it. And I'm hoping that people uh, will, that libraries will get it also. And so that people could read it at their libraries, but yeah, it's also on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and, you know, um, or you, there's also UGA Press, people can contact them as well. Great. Uh, well, Carrie, thank you so much. Uh, yeah. What a, what a wonderful uh, contribution you've made towards making the world a better place. 
So thank you so much thank again, humananimalearthlings.com. If you'd like more information, humananimalearthlings.com. And I want to thank all of our listeners. And um, this has been a joint show of Radio Free Georgia. Uh, and it's Second Opinion Radio and In Tune to Nature with host Melody Paris and uh, myself. I'm Carrie Freeman. So thank you. Take care of yourself, others, including other species. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.